Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press. Our small press publishes books we want to see in the world, including Changing Paths by Avon Abro, Conjuring the Commonplace by Lane Fuller and Corey Thomas Hutchison of New World Witchery Podcast, and Verona Green, my latest book. Find out more about us and purchase these and other titles at thousandvoltpress.com. Kate Anderson lives in Utah with her husband and four children. When she's not writing, she's embroidering her favorite book covers, exploring the mountains, or planning road trips to places that are off the beaten path. The weirder, the better. Here Lies Olive is her first book. Kate Anderson, welcome to Witchlet. Thank you so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And I really loved your book and I can't wait to talk about it. But the first question we ask everybody on the show is, especially I think in this age of visual medium, like why still write? Why still write books? I love that question. And I've actually been thinking about this all week because <laughs> um, some days I ask myself the same thing. I think, <laughs> why am I doing this? <laughs> some days it's really, really hard. And um, and I actually told my husband earlier this week, I was like, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. And he kind of laughed and was like, you have said that before. <laughs> so apparently I go through these phases. Um, for me, I have stories in my head. They just keep popping into my head all the time, everywhere I go. People I meet, places, settings. I just am constantly thinking of new stories that I want to tell. And um, I really enjoy sitting down and getting those out on, well, on screen, not on paper, but on screen. So Here Lives Olive is your first book. It's, um, I would say YA, is that what? Yes, yes. Does, yeah. Um, although I will say I'm not usually a YA reader because of the tropey like love triangle stuff more than anything. This book does not have that trope, which I love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did want to kind of let you talk about like kind of your experience of getting published for the first time and what that's been like and working with Flux and all of that. Yeah. So I actually have a different path to publication than most traditionally published authors do. Um, I was offered a contract with Flux before I had an agent. Mm -hmm. And usually for most writers, you know, they query an agent and then are able to sign with an agent. And then the agent sends their books out to publishers um, on submission. So here lies all was the third book that I had queried and um, it was pretty early on in the query process. Still, I saw a tweet from Ashton Stan, who is my editor at Flux, and she was asking for spooky books. And then I saw that she was willing to accept unagented manuscripts. So I sent it out to her, not really thinking anything would come of it. Um, and was very pleased and a little bit surprised when she loved it and said she wanted to take it to acquisitions. So it went through three rounds of acquisitions with the team at Flux. Um, and then they did offer me a contract, which I was super excited about, but I still wanted to have representation, mm -hmm. um, not just for this book, but I, you know, I've been, I had been trying to 
find an agent to represent me for several years because I want someone who will represent me for my whole career and be a partner. So Flux very graciously gave me um, a couple of weeks to send out a last, some last minute queries with this offer. Um, and I was able to sign with an agent really quickly. They answer you really, really quickly if you put offer of publication in the subject line. Mm. <laughs> so I was able to sign with an agent and then she, yeah, she finished the negotiations and um, we signed the contract. I think it was about two months from the initial offer date to when I signed the contract with Flux because that took up, you know, the finding the agent and then negotiations as well. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's great that you could get, you know, get the offer without an agent and then still do all the negotiation with an agent. That's pretty awesome. It was really, I cannot imagine it working out any better. It was just, it worked out so wonderfully. It was such, (laughs) such a relatively easy process in a field that is full of waiting and uncertainty and, and, you know, it can be very difficult, but this (laughs) was really smooth and it went great. And I, couldn't be happier with Flux either. Mm-hmm. They're wonderful. Oh, as I say, the cover is gorgeous, by the way. Thank they did you. did a great job. Thank I mean, it's you. just one of those books where you pick it up and you're like, oh, I want to read this immediately just from picking the cover. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, so let's talk about what's inside the book. Uh, do you want to give like a little synopsis for folks who haven't read? A, a non-spoiler synopsis for folks who haven't read? Sure. Yeah. I mean, just like a real quick little tagline. Um, So Here Lies Olive is about a 16-year-old girl named Olive who is struggling with kind of an existential crisis. She had a near-death experience several years earlier. And rather than, you know, feel like she was going towards her light or something, she saw nothing and it really scared her. And so she has been struggling with this existential crisis of is there something after we die? And if there's not, then like, what's the point? Um, And in order to deal with that, she decides the best course of action is to summon a ghost to answer her questions about the afterlife. But when she summons the ghost, she accidentally traps him in her world. So she has to figure out a way to help him move on and hopefully find the answer to her question. Mm -hmm. And I love the world that you've built around Olive or the world you built for Olive. Um, For folks who haven't had the pleasure of reading it yet, Olive lives in a fictional town in um, New Mexico called Whitehaven. That is the dark tourism capital of the United States, (laughs) which I just loved. And I was so sad to learn it wasn't real. (laughs) I know me too. Like, wouldn't that be great? Um, Whitehaven is actually, it's not really based on this town, but my original idea, what helped me come up with this setting is a real town in Colorado. It's called Crestone and it has the only open air funeral pyre in the Western hemisphere. Um, so I heard an NPR story about it a few years ago. Uh, this open air funeral pyre was so popular among people that they had to pass an ordinance that only citizens of the town could be cremated on the open air funeral pyre. And because of that, it led to lots of 
terminally ill or elderly people moving to Crestone to become citizens. And so that after they died, they could be cremated on the open air funeral pyre. And I just thought that was such a fascinating idea to think of this town that was really kind of embracing death. And that gave me the idea for Whitehaven thinking like, okay, well, if there's a lot of terminally ill people moving, then, you know, are there going to be more funeral homes opening up or more hospice or things like that? That was kind of my inspiration for Whitehaven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And everybody basically works in the death industry somehow. Like her dad is a tombstone carver. And her mom is a a, a, a cos, cosmetician, mortuary, mortuary cosmetologist. Cos- yeah. <laughs> so uh, I could not think of the word, but it's just, I, I love the idea of this, like, it kind of has like Salem, Massachusetts vibes, but also not like it's, it's a little darker even than Salem. I mean, Salem kind of, I feel like is kind of like the Disneyfication of witches in some ways. And this is, is, oh yeah, for sure. This is a little different. Um, but I, I just love the town and the people and everything you've built around Olive. Um, so for folks who have not run yet, Olive does a little ritual. And I was curious, like what your research for kind of, I guess the death industry stuff too, but like also like the magic that happens in the book around, or the paranormal things that happen in the book around what Olive does to summon the ghost and with other supernatural beings in the book? Uh-huh. Um, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I didn't really do any research. I just made it all up. Um, I'm not a practitioner. I have total respect for everyone. And so I hope that doesn't come across as like um, disrespectful, maybe that I just kind of made these things up. But I really wanted Olive to be you know, she's kind of grasping at straws. Mm -hmm. She's kind of like, this is like, she doesn't necessarily believe in anything. And so she's just doing anything she can think of. Um, So as far as her little ritual, I just wrote, I just kind of made up something that I thought sounded spooky and like it would summon a ghost for someone who doesn't (laughs) really know anything. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I didn't really put a lot of research into it. The death industry stuff, uh, I I read just a couple of articles, like there's an article about that town, Crestone, but again, it wasn't really a very research-heavy book for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is, there's a lot of world building, because I mean, it is set, you know, like contemporary, although I will say that's one of the things I really enjoyed about the book, is that um, though you think of it as a contemporary setting they kind of have this like 1950s vibe about them yes so, yes so it's like you can be kind of it's almost like a overlay of anachronism but not it's not really anachronism it's just their style like they're into rockabilly music and they have a sock hop a sock hop and you know that kind of stuff but it's not it's not really anachronism I am so glad that you picked up on that 1950s vibe. I feel like that kind of, it was a lot stronger in earlier versions and mm-hmm. just through the process of editing, you know, those things change. Um, but yeah, that was always my vision for it. What is that? It's this like kooky little town that's almost stuck in the past. Mm-hmm. Like your, um, 
your middle America, mid-century kind of like leave it to beaver type town, or I guess a better example might be Stars Hollow. I guess I don't know if everyone knows leave it to beaver nowadays, but like a Stars Hollow little little town where everybody is friendly, everybody gets along, but there's this this death industry that kind of is over everything. So yeah, that was intentional. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's such a, I I was talking, I have a writer's group that meets every week and I was telling them about your book. And um, I was just like, you know, one of the things that I love about it is because it's so easy when you write a book now to date it based on like the technology and like all of the stuff, because that stuff changes so fast now. Right. Yeah. Think about like books even written 20 years ago like feel dated because they don't have cell phones with cameras or, you know, just those, those are just kind of funny things. And I was like, what a great way to get around some of that because the town has this vibe where you can say those days, like she can drive, you know, James Dean's car. Yeah. (laughs) And that's not a big deal. And people will know who that is because it's their aesthetic, you know, like it's, it kind of gets away. It it gets around being an adult trying to write a 16 year old too, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have to like keep up with all the slang. I don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Cause they, they kind of have their own. Yeah. Yeah. I enjoyed that. And I, and one of the things I will say about, you know, kind of the, the leave it to beaver, I think, I think folks know it at least as a reference, if not, you know, I show. hope they do. I don't know. I do have teenagers and they kind of did. I mm-hmm. mean, they've heard leave it to beaver, but they weren't super clear on it. So yeah. who knows? But I mean, one of the things I thought was interesting about it is it is that very 50s vibe, you know, sock hops and, you know, poodle skirts and that whole thing. But like things happen with Olive and I I don't want to spoil that part, but people don't react like it's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. What? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. And yeah. And I think, I mean, I love if I could choose a decade i would choose the 50s or the 60s i just i love the Mm. clothes i love the music i love the whole aesthetic of it um would i actually want to live during that time based on how protected classes were treated no definitely not Mm -hmm. (laughs) so i thought it was fun to kind of take all the good all the fun parts of that era that i really liked but like plop them down here where there's a lot more tolerance mm-hmm. um and and a little bit healthier dynamics yeah yeah no i really appreciate that and it and it didn't feel forced like you know sometimes you feel like oh this is like a pollyanna version of the world but it kind of reminded me of like a lot of the folks i i, I love to follow people who do like historical clothing you make historical clothing oh yeah and they always fun. talk about yes. vintage vintage style not vintage values <laughs> uh, yes it was kind of the vibe that was kind of the vibe you know that it's is, like, oh that's perfect I haven't heard that before but yes I'm going to use that because that's totally me yeah and I, I was like okay this is really fun and I, I just like that part of it I mean I think that's one of the best things about being a writer right is that you get to create that world right yeah it's definitely fun. Anything I can imagine, I can create it. Yeah. That's that's the most fun part of being a writer, I think, for sure. So one of the things kind of on that 
I wanted to ask you about in the acknowledgements, you mentioned that you worked with a sensitivity reader because the town is very close to the Diné Navajo Nation. And um, some of the characters are Navajo Diné folks. Right. So you worked with a sensitivity reader. So what was that process like? So I was really lucky. One of my daughter's good friends is Navajo and her mother was so gracious and helped me with this. Um, she, she read through the, I don't think it was the very final draft, but she read through maybe the second to last draft for me and left some notes. And she also answered, I don't know. I probably texted her dozens of questions as I was writing that draft, you know, just asking like, oh, well, is, is this insensitive? But also asking questions like, well, would he say it like this? Or would it matter if he, you know, treated something like this? Or what would he call his grandparents? You know, things like mm -hmm. that. Right. So she answered so many questions. She shared her, um, she shared some of her family's experiences with like, uh, boarding schools, Indian boarding schools. And, you know, a hundred years ago, maybe it wasn't even that long ago. I unfortunately don't, I think it might be more recent, but mm -hmm. so she was able to share some of the trauma that her, her direct family members suffered and how that trauma has trickled down through the generations and how it affects her and her children today. So that was really, really helpful because that was kind of one of the themes that my Navajo character was dealing with. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think it's so important. And I mean, I feel like this is an ongoing conversation for, you know, especially white people who are writing books. Like you don't want to write books that are only white people, right? But you also right. want to, you want to write the diverse, rich world we live in, but you, you also want to be sensitive to those things. So I think, you know, folks who aren't aware of sensitivity readers or, or things like that, it's, it's such a good way to, um, to make sure that you are including diversity, but you're not skewing it with your, your own lens as a white person. So, yeah, that's such a difficult um, conversation talking about, about diversity in books, because yes, I want my books and my characters to be diverse, but do I, as a white woman have the right or the knowledge to write a story about somebody whose background I don't share. Mm -hmm. um, I, for myself, I don't think I would ever write a story with a point of view character with a um, heritage that I don't share. I don't, mm -hmm. I just, I don't think that I can do it justice. And I don't really think it's my place. I feel like that story should be told by someone who's living that. Right. Um, so having, having other characters in it, I think is for me, a better solution, but yeah, it's still, you know, it needs to be done with sensitivity and it needs to be done with intention and thought and not just like, Oh, well, I need more people of color. So let's just, you know, make this person like, I think it needs to be a part of their, their character arc and not just a change in words on the page. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, you know, it goes for me, just in, you know, I've, I've gone to some seminars and I, you know, I've talked to writer friends and, you know, kind of everybody is, is trying to do better and, and really look at this 
issue. And I agree with you. I don't think I would ever write a point of view character from who was someone who wasn't, you know, a white, probably female even. I don't know that I, right. I haven't really written, I've written like side character, like point of view stuff, but not really main character, even as a man. So like, I, I, not that I'm saying people can't do that. I just personally haven't, and I haven't thought about it. <laughs> so, yeah. But, um, but yeah, I think it's just really, it's just something to continue. And I, you know, the, the one thing is that we don't, we'll never arrive, right? All we can do is strive to be better about this. And yeah, I think yeah. it's just an ongoing conversation, but um, I just appreciate the work that sensitivity readers do and that they're willing to do it. And, you know, and then, you know, compensation and all that is a whole other story but oh yeah definitely um and but it's just such a helpful thing and because i don't you know i don't live in a world that's just white people i don't live in a world of people that just look like me and i don't want to write books like that yeah yeah because everybody deserves to see themselves represented in a book plus how boring would it be if every book was exactly you know just a white cast like yeah we would really miss out on a lot of stories there well, and I think, you know, not that fiction has to be reality, but I mean, the book is set in New Mexico. <laughs> like, of course, there are going right. to be, you know, people who are indigenous heritage and there's going to be, you know, um, people who were there when it was part of New Spain. And, you know, like there's just going to be lots of different kind of people who live there. So, yeah. Interesting. Ah, yeah. But yeah, I, I like that you included it in the acknowledgements too, because I think it's just important for readers and writers to know that that's something you can do. And I think if you're working with a traditional house, it's more likely to be something that they will ask you to do, I think. Oh, yeah. And um, Flux was very supportive of me using a sensitivity reader. It was kind of up to me to find one. And like I said, I I was... I was lucky. I did have some other ideas. I, if anybody wants ideas, um, there are several Navajo restaurants near me. So I was one of my ideas before I realized that my daughter had a Navajo friend. Mm-hmm. I thought I could go to some of those restaurants, ask if anybody there was interested or knew somebody who was interested because they are indigenous owned, the ones near me. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my first idea. Just, you know, if anybody's trying to figure out where to start looking for a sensitivity sensitivity reader. I think restaurants or cultural associations in your area are mm-hmm. probably a good place to start, at least give you, you know, a starting point. Right. And I think some bigger publishers I mean, will probably, I, I haven't worked with a big publisher, so I don't know, but I think from what I've heard, they also have people that they, they have like a list of people that they work oh, with yeah. or things like I'm that. Sure I'm, I'm sure that like the big five publishers probably mm-hmm. have have people that they have worked mm-hmm. with or, you know, organizations that they have worked with. Yeah. But I think if you're, if you're with a smaller press or independently published, yeah, finding somebody may be a little more of a challenge, but I think those are good suggestions. And I, I've noticed too, like on social media, there are a lot of people who now will have, you know, sensitivity reader in their bio. So they're, you know, can find those folks on social media too, which is great. Oh yeah. That's a great one too. Um, um so October release for spooky season. So what, you know, I think the flip side of the, like the fun stuff. And then, you know, like also the business stuff is the marketing part. (laughs) Yeah. Marketing is hard. Yeah. Like, I think that that's it. The marketing is hard. 
So for you, like, what is that challenge? Because I assume you have some support from Flux on the marketing end of things, but they're a smaller press. So you're not getting like Simon & Schuster level of... Yeah, I mean, I don't know anything about marketing. I don't know anything. I don't know what the options even are. Flux is really great with social media. Um, They set up social media, like virtual book tours for when the cover was released. And now that we have... Um, physical copies out there. They they did like an Instagram bookstagram or tour. Um, and then I I am not a huge fan of social media. <laughs> I just don't really, I'm not great at doing it. But, you know, I think nowadays marketing relies mostly on social media. So that's been our focus. Um, I, I'm not, I'm not good at marketing. I don't really know what else there is to do. Honestly, I need someone else to tell me (laughs) I need to like take a class or something, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know so few people who started out as writers who had marketing jobs. I mean, they're out there and that a lot of those people are selling, you know, $4,000 courses for you to figure out how to flog your, your books. But yeah, it's, it's just, it's like, it's a different part of my brain. Like, yeah. I want to write, I want to tell stories and talk to people on a podcast. I don't want to do ads. I don't want to, you know, do all that stuff. And I know that is a um, common thing among like creatively minded people. You know, I've seen like reels and stuff on Instagram of people saying not, and not just writers, but like small shop owners and craft shop owners and mm-hmm. artists and things, you know, saying, um, I read that to be successful small business, you have to create content. And so here's my content, you know, and it kind of made me chuckle because that's exactly how I feel. Like I Mm -hmm. don't want to be creating content. I just want to be writing. But I think even with the nowadays, even if you're with a really big publisher, they expect you to do social media. They expect Mm -hmm. you to participate in that kind of thing. That's just, that's part of it now. It's not a fun part. No. And I think there's even like some expectation with some bigger publishers that you already have a following, that you've already made a yeah. mark somehow. And I think, you know, that's really hard. <laughs> that's really hard yeah. to think about like how to do that. But um, I know that I know that's definitely true in the nonfiction world mm-hmm. that it's really expected to have a big following for that. Um, that was one thing flux before they offered me a contract. They did ask me if I had like what my social media engagement was and it's not high. And it was a lot smaller than to like my, mm-hmm. my author accounts. Um, so they didn't have like super high standards for me, <laughs> but I think they were mostly willing to see, they wanted to see that I was willing to try and put some of the work into it. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Even though I feel like I just don't really know what I'm doing. I try my best. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, it's a challenging thing and it's, you know, something that the people go to school for, you know, like people mm-hmm. are working industries for a while to learn it. So I think, you know, like social media content creation is one thing, but you know, you're fighting the algorithm. You, right. You know? Yeah that all of those things. So I think it's, um, it's, it's just a challenge and it, it, um, kind of sucks the fun out of the publishing part. It kind of does. One thing, um, I'm in a 
a 2023 debuts group with lots of other authors who debuted this year. Mm -hmm. Um, When we joined, when we started this group about a year and a half ago, once people had announced and stuff. um, And then up at the beginning of this year, when books started being released, it was really fun. It was a very active group. There was lots of sharing and boosting each other's posts and stuff. And now that it's October, and we're finally to my point, I'm kind of like burnt out on doing all of that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like that's, I think maybe one of the the cons of having a book released towards the end of the year is there's a lot of hype and excitement at the beginning of a year for books yeah. coming out. And then as the year goes on, it's harder. I mean, even for me as the author, it's harder to be like really hyped up about it. Yeah. Well, and it's just such a long process. I mean, we talked a little bit before we started recording and you know, from the time you sign with the traditional publisher, from the time you sign the contract and the time you see your book in your hand is about two years, right? So that's yeah. a long, that's yeah. a long time and it's a lot of work and there's a lot going on. And then there's a lot of periods where you don't know what's going on. <laughs> so that's, and then on yeah. the independent side, you know, you're kind of racing, racing, racing up until the last minute. Cause you're doing everything yourself. And then the book is out there and it's like, yeah. oh, what happens now? <laughs> like it's like this, you walk, you kind of walk off a cliff. Yeah. It's kind of a strange feeling. And I think anyone who writes can probably relate to this. You know, it's not just like, it's a long time, but you also read your own words so many times, so many times that you kind of lose all, like, I, I read things and I'm like, is this good? Is this like, I can't even tell anymore. I don't even know because yeah. you've just read it so many times. So that's also, that's kind of difficult for me. I have to kind of like take a step back after I turn things in and just try to forget everything I just wrote so that when I read it again, it can feel mm-hmm. fresh. Yeah. And I think that's it too. It's that you've, you've read it, you know, if you're like me, you've read it like a thousand times probably before it comes oh, out. Yeah. And it, it just stops to, ha- it stops having meaning. Yeah. And I feel like I know every detail of my character. I know all of her motivations. I know what she's thinking. I know what she's feeling. So sometimes for me, it's hard to know, like, am I getting that out on the page or do I just feel like I am because I know it all in my head? Yeah. It's hard to know, like, would a reader who hasn't, had this character talking to them in their head for the past three years, would they know what she wants? I, it, that can be a hard one to kind of lose sight of as well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. That it's like, what's on the page. I mean, I, I bless beta readers for like, you know, yeah. <laughs> going, by the way, like she does this thing and I have no idea why, like, why does she do that? You know? Yeah. Yeah. And Where then you're you like, know there's it's a plot so obvious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the favorite one is Those when are they the go, worst. by the way, there's a plot hole that you can drive a truck through. Did you know that? And I was like, uh, no, thank you for pointing that out. Oh, no. yeah. Yeah. Oh, plus beta readers. So obviously, Witchlet would talk about spooky stuff on the show um, and occult things. So one of the things uh, that I kind of wanted to talk to you about is obviously... You've created a dark tourism capital. 
And in your bio, it says you like to do those things. So where are your spooky places you like to go? Oh my gosh. I love, well, I love weird places. They're not necessarily all spooky, but mm-hmm. um, one of like really besides writing my absolute favorite thing to do is to plan road trips for my family. And we like to go to the weirdest things we can find. So um, let me think, <laughs> let me think. So actually the reason here lies all of us set in New Mexico is because about five years ago, for spring break, we did a road trip through New Mexico and we don't know anybody who lives in New Mexico. We don't have any friends or family there. So when I was telling people where I live in Utah, you know, our plans for spring break, they were all like, do you have family there? And we would say no. And they were like, oh, why are you going to New Mexico then? Mm-hmm. I just thought it sounded cool. Um, So we did kind of a Route 66 thing through New Mexico, stayed in some of the like, um, classic route 66 motels that have been there for decades. Um, that was really fun. We love to find like weird roadside attraction type places in Albuquerque. There was this place called Tinker town. That was, I, I don't really know if I can even describe it. It was like dioramas and whole buildings and hallways made out of like discarded beer bottles and things and it was just really fun um so we we really love to find just kind of kitschy out of the way things Mm -hmm. the more i can drive on like a back road and less on the interstate the better because that's where you see the weird stuff yes definitely um i have i have only been a resident of the west for two years i am an east coast girl and um but we drove when we moved all the way across with a 13 year old cat. And um, so we got to stop and see a lot of those things, those weird things. And I was just like, yeah, the West is a different place. I mean, I, there's a lot of stuff on the East coast and, but it's a little more hidden because it wasn't part of that road trip culture as much as the yeah. West was yeah, in exactly. like the 50s and 60s and the early road trip culture. But there's just so much stuff. There's so much stuff. I mean, I grew up in Tennessee. So for folks who uh, are Neil Gaiman fans, they will know about Rock City in Chattanooga, Tennessee. That is. um, I know about that. My family lived in Tennessee for 15 years after I like was an adult. My parents mm -hmm. moved there um, and they loved Rock City. So, yeah, that's a fun one. Yeah, it's great. Um, the the thing about Rock City that I think people who have not been don't know is that it is a beautiful outdoor area with trails and there's like a, a overlook where you can see seven states if it's clear. You know, it's it's really beautiful outdoor space. But there's this thing called the Fairland Caverns that are like di- dioramas, but with Daglo paint and black lights and fairies and gnomes mining. And it's a whole thing. <laughs> It's kind of creepy and fascinating and so very like otherworldly when you go in. Like, I am not surprised Neil Gaiman decided to set part of his book there. So that that seriously sounds like the best. I love that kind of thing. There is a place here in Utah down by Moab, which is where Arches National Park is and Mm -hmm. is such a fun place to visit. Um, There's a place called Hole in the Rock and it's a house 
in that has been chiseled out of the big sandstone cliffs. Um, mm-hmm. a, just a guy, like a self-trained guy, not like an engineer or anything. He used dynamite and blasted himself a house. It's like, it's like 3000 square feet too. It's really big. Um, back in like the forties or fifties. And that is a really fun place mm-hmm. to visit. And they've got, so they have, you can go on tours of the house, which is in the cliff and that's really cool. But then outside, they also have a bunch of like kitschy stuff and it's a fun place. We like that one. Oh, that sounds great. I and mean, it's like Petra kind of in the desert. <laughs> Utah, it sounds yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't even know if this is like a kind of art, but we call in my family, our favorite kind of art is what we call desert art because mm-hmm. there is a lot of art out in the desert and it's mostly found objects mm-hmm. that have been sculpted and put together into really, really fascinating things. And yeah, that's so when we go on road trips, they they usually take us to some sort of desert art installation. Oh, I love that. Yeah. I I, I don't know if you're a fan of Atlas Obscura. Do you know Atlas Obscura? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yeah. So like every day I get their email and I'm just like, I want to go there. I, I want to go there. No, I want to go there. And some of them are like really far away and probably places I will never get to visit. <laughs> but some of them I'm like, that is literally in San Jose. I'm going to go see that place. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of Atlas Obscura is great. And they do, they, that's one of my road trip planning resources Mm -hmm. (laughs) that I always use. Um, Because every time, whatever town or city we go to, I always look it up to see if there's something great there. And there usually is, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Yeah. I mean, and their, their database is so huge now. Like I, yeah, like I think you go just anywhere and there's going to be something either there where you're going or close by or on the way. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. it's just, I love, uh, weird tourism. I don't know that I am a dark tourism person. Like I'm not like, I have been to some of those places that people consider dark tourism. Um, I guess on the, it depends on where you are on the spectrum of what you consider dark tourism. Like I've, but I, those are not places I seek out. Like I find yeah those very disturbing and I don't, uh-huh. I, I mean, I don't know that I'm sensitive or whatever, but, um, we, when I was in college, we went to Auschwitz on a trip when we were in oh. Poland and yeah. I, it was like, it was the only place I've told people it's the only place I've ever been that felt like the earth underneath me was dead. Mm, yeah. I have no, that doesn't appeal to me really at all i mean i guess Mm -hmm. that people do consider that dark tourism um that doesn't really appeal to me Mm -hmm. when i think of dark tourism i guess i'm thinking more i don't know like salem like we were talking about yeah like spooky kind of yeah yeah spooky but not like houses and not yeah yeah i i think or like like, i felt like legend important places yeah like i felt it was really important to go while we were there to see the you know the museum there is incredible and the curation is incredible and they you know have people you can talk to and it I think it's just important to witness really to go as a witness and mm-hmm. to understand what happened but like why were they I will never forget this because I was so like in my head and 
like just it was such a strange day and there was a tour group of children who were laughing and running and kind of pushing each other and you know and it just was so incongruous with what was going on around us that like it just kind of shocked me out of the experience and I was like maybe they're not ready like if that's the reaction like why take little kids there if they if they yeah. can't yeah you know I don't know I, it was just a, it was such a strange experience so I I don't seek things like that out, but um yeah, like urban legends and like um I have a friend who uh a couple of years ago went to West Virginia to where the Mothman stuff is. Oh cool. Yeah, see that kind and, of thing. You know, like, shared pictures with us. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff appeals more to me. That's right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Stuff where it's like there are creepy stories, but you know, maybe nothing ever happened there and mm-hmm it's more fun to think about than it's not really something you have to really think about. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting all twisted around. It's fun to kind of go and visit, but you don't have to think too deeply about mm-hmm. what might've actually happened there. Yeah. It's yeah. I think there's a difference though. I have heard people talk about memorial places like Auschwitz and, and like ground zero and the Oklahoma city bombing memorial. They've talked about them as dark tourism. It's like, I don't think that's dark tourism. Those are memorials. They're there for a reason. You know, it's not. Yeah. Those are not fun trips. Like, that's not, you know, for me. Yeah. I think it's more about, like you said, it's like supernatural stuff or ghost stories or things like that. I, it's not about. Yeah. It's just different. And like I said, those things are important. And I'm not saying don't go to those things. And you're weird if you go to those things. That is not what I'm saying at all. I think they're important, but I think when people talk about dark tourism, I don't think we have a good, a good definition yet that works that when people are talking about it, they're talking about the same thing. Cause yeah, like if I hear dark tourism, you know, I'm definitely thinking of more things like ghost tours, mm-hmm. like pretty much every city has a ghost tour nowadays and those are yeah. fun and they are usually very exaggerated And a lot of them are like urban legend type things Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, there's a spectrum from things like that all the way to going to places where we know horrible things have occurred. Uh, Um, Yeah, yeah, there is a spectrum. Yeah, I'm definitely on the fun end of that spectrum. Yeah, I was thinking about walking tours. Like, I, I love walking tours in cities and even ones that don't necessarily have like, you know, ghost story elements. Like just finding out about the history of a place. Like we did one years ago when I went to London and it was a history of the the Great Fire. Oh, interesting. That would be very interesting. It wasn't really like a ghost story or anything, but like we went to Pudding Lane to where the monument is and we started there. And then we talked about what happened, you know, on the days of the Great Fire and rebuilding afterwards. And it was just such an incredible walk. And there were some, you know, spooky, I mean, the Great Fire was a, calamity yeah. and you know, all of that. So there was some stuff like that, but it was, um, it was just such a great experience to walk through those places with someone who knew the history and kind of answer questions and, you know, could, you know, kind of slip you back in time a little bit while you're standing in front of, you know, the gherkin in London, you know, it was just like, it was a great experience. Oh, that sounds really cool. So I do recommend those. <laughs> even if you don't like ghost ghost tours or anything those kind of walks are great just like the history walks and stuff 
But yeah, I I am I we have still not ramped up our traveling post COVID, and I am chomping at the bit. Oh yeah, there's so many places out there. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, just moving here, like so much stuff that has been far away, being on the East Coast, is now close. So that's kind of cool mm-hmm. to be able to do that now too. So it's like a whole new world opens up to you. Yeah, yeah. a whole new set of trips that you can take. Yeah, although I have noticed, and being from Utah, you probably know this, road trips in the West require way more car snacks because there is oh, so yeah. much <laughs> distance between everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you can drive, especially like Nevada and a lot of parts of California, you're driving three or four hours between any kind of little town. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. a whole different, a whole different thing, but there's, there's lots of fun, interesting things out here. Um, so for you, like for writing, like now that you've gotten this first book out, yay. Congratulations. Yeah. And you. you know, so what's next for you? Like, what are, what are your goals with your writing? Like what's, what's coming up for you? Like, what are you what I guess what part is writing playing in your life now that you've gotten a book published? Yeah. Um, so I have another book coming out next October, also with Flex. So I'm about halfway through the revision process with that one right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and this one is special to me because it is actually the first book I ever wrote. Well, it's it's a rewrite of the first book I ever wrote. Um back when I had no idea what I was doing, you know, I wrote this story and it has changed a lot because I have improved a lot and I know what I'm doing now, but it's very special to me because mm. it's the same characters, it's the same setting, same themes. Um, so that's really special to me. So that is coming out next October, October mm. of 2024. Um, awesome. So right now that's what I'm focusing on. I do have, I mean, like I said, my head is full of stories. So <laughs> I do have, uh, I'm, let me count real quick in my head. <laughs> I've got, I've got about four other things that I've either started writing, like just drafting for fun or their works in progress, I guess. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure which one I'm going to focus on after Lonely Places. That's my book that's coming out next year. I'm not sure what I'll focus on after that, but I do have, I have a handful of things that I've been thinking about for some of them for several years. So is the new book Lonely Places, is that YA as well? Yes, it is. It's young adults. This one is set in Utah. That's fun. Um, It's set, maybe you've heard of this place if you like Atlas Obscura. It's, It's set in Pando, which is a genetic, Aspen clone in central Utah. It's a, for a while, it was considered the largest organism on earth. I Mm -hmm. think last time I read, there is now a like fungi field in Oregon that is considered one organism and is bigger. But Pando is a, it's a grove of Aspen trees. They're all genetic clones. It's thought to be like 10,000 years old. Um, so all the trees, you know, it looks like you're walking through a a grove of trees. You can't tell anything on the surface, but Mm -hmm. it's really cool to think about how underneath all of these trees are connected and they are a super organism and it's been there for 10,000 years. Um, so 
sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent, but Lonely Places oh, no, is set <laughs> at a Lonely Places is set at a fire lookout station in Pando in Utah. And it is young adults. It is about a family that has been um kind of running from trauma for a long time, trying to avoid trauma rather than deal with things that have happened in their lives. And when they move into this fire lookout in Pando, that just some things start happening, creepy, weird things start happening in the woods that forces them to really confront it for the first time. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, I mean, I I kind of, I feel like I kind of stepped away from reading YA when it did kind of go down that Everything is a love triangle and it the sullen girl and the two boys who love her who will save the world <laughs> kind of thing. And and she's beautiful, but she doesn't know it. Yeah. Like there's a lot of that. <laughs> and I was just like, you know, I, I, I like and now I'm 50 and I'm like, I just can't relate to, to that so much. But what I found interesting about your book, it makes me think maybe I should give why another chance is uh, like at no point did I feel like. um this wasn't written for anyone who wanted to read it. Like, yes, all of us 16 and we're from her, it's first person point of view, but it is not like, she has like a real problem. Right. I mean, what happens after mm-hmm. you die? That's huge. That's yeah. like a huge yeah. universal thing. And it's so much more about her relationship with her family and her friends. And yes, there's some romance that happens in there, but it's not, that is not the focus of the book. And it just felt like such a richer experience and reminded me of like books that I read when I was a a YA reader when I was that age. And I feel like maybe we've come back around to those, like more about what it means to self-actualize and come of age and all of that. I think there are lots of really incredible YA YA books out there. I Mm -hmm. think that you run into a lot of the like love triangle tropes and stuff in um, maybe more like fantasy and dystopian fiction. Mm-hmm. I think it seems like they often have those. And I am, I love reading dystopian. That's like my favorite genre. <laughs> um, fantasy is harder for me, but I know people love fantasy and that's great. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those. I, I It just seems to me like those tropes kind of show up a little bit more mm-hmm. in those those genres but yeah a lot of YA I mean teenagers are going through a lot (laughs) there's a lot that they go through and I think there are some really rich stories there you know a lot of people I think there's a reason a lot of people are drawn to YA and it's because a lot of us really feel those things you know no matter how old you get you can either feel them or remember what it felt mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, like I have teenagers. I am not a teenager anymore. <laughs> like I'm old enough that I have my own teenagers, but sometimes I still feel like one. Um, maybe I'm just immature. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> but think that was, I think that's universal too, a little bit. I think, yeah, I think that was, it's maybe part of the reason is because we all have these like universal kind of angsty feelings. And by the time you're an adult, you can kind of deal with them. You have more experience. You can kind of deal with them better. And so I think maybe that's why YA is rewarding even to adults. Mm -hmm. I don't know. 
Yeah. No, it makes sense to me. And I think, you know, I always think about like when you're a teenager and even into your twenties, like the first time something happens and you have to deal with it, like you don't know what the other side of that problem looks like. You you haven't done that yet. Mm-hmm. You haven't pushed yeah. through something, a, a trauma or a problem to get to the other side and know that it's going to be okay. So it is kind of the end of the world while you're in it. You know, like it's just, it, everything is ramped up because it's the first time you're dealing with it. So I think that aspect yeah. of it is, is true. And I, I mean, I, I mean, I look in the mirror and I know my face does not look like it. I'm in my twenties, but my brain sometimes goes, how did I get here? <laughs> so I think, yeah. that, I think that not realizing we're aging thing. Yeah. When I have to tell someone how old I am, my first thought is 22 and I have not been 22 for a long time, but I think my brain like stopped at 22. Like that's my like- mental age for some reason. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> well, there you go. Take advantage of it. You're writing YA. There you go. Um, I think that's yeah, great. It's, it's fun. I get to relive those days. <laughs> yeah. Um, so like I said, we, we try and keep things to an hour because that's about my attention span as a podcast listener. <laughs> um, but before we get to our last question, I want to give you an opportunity to just kind of plug what's coming up. We've talked a little bit about your next book, but if you have events or anything, this will air in December, which is crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, so what's coming up for you and where can folks find you? Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram at Kate Ander writes. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but not very regularly. So Instagram is more where you can find me and on my Instagram profile, I have like a link tree that has all of my, like my website. And right now it's full of stuff for Olive, like Mm -hmm. um, events and stuff for Olive. But that's what I keep updated mostly with upcoming events. Um, And yeah, I'm, like I said, I'm mostly just focusing on lonely places. So next fall is when that will come out. And I'm sure I'll have some events then, but my brain can't go more than like a week (laughs) in in the future. That I completely understand. So I don't know any of them yet. Yeah, I feel like I'm always out of time from like when I'm recording and things are going to air and like, i never know like what day it is anymore because of that. Um, <laughs> I, I completely understand. So for our last question, um, I always joke on the show that I'm a Scorpio and I like to talk about things we're not supposed to talk about. So I'm going to roll a die <laughs> and depending on what number I get, you'll get a question about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. And if I roll up six, you get to pick which one you want. Okay. And these are written. Okay. The questions are written for you. So, I mean, some of them I do recycle. I will let people know. They've probably heard them. Some of them I do recycle, but I try to write new questions for every guest. So three, religion. You can also pass. Religion. Okay. What's what's the question? Let me hear your question. So you have been made Pope of speculative fiction writers. And (laughs) who are the first three writers that you canonize that you choose for canonization? Oh my gosh, that's a hard question. That's a hard question because there are so many choices, but also because my like brain has a hard time holding on to any author's name. Like I read (laughs) tons of books and immediately forget every detail as soon as I close it. 
Can I have a different question? Let me pass yes. that one. I don't okay. know if I can answer that okay. one. <laughs> so I will pick because I've made this joke so many times. So I'm going to give you one death because of your book. So I have joked multiple times in the show when people said, oh, death. I was like, well, I'm not going to ask you what happens after we die. But you brought it up in your book. So I'm going to ask you, Kate Anderson, what happens when we die? Okay, that is such a great question. That is seriously why I wrote the book, because I was wondering. Um, I grew up religious. I grew up believing in heaven, not really believing in hell, but believing in an afterlife in heaven. I think I still believe in that. Um, but I don't know that it's, I don't know if I can really explain this, but once I had a dream and it was kind of a sad, morbid dream because in the dream I died. And as I was dying in my dream, I was so sad because I was leaving my children. My kids were pretty little. They were like Mm. preschoolers at the time. Um, so in the dream, as I died, I was devastated. Not because I thought they wouldn't be cared for, but because I was going to miss watching them grow up. Yeah. And as soon as I died in the dream, it became clear to me that I was still there with them. And I can't really describe how comforting it was. It wasn't, I wasn't in a different place. I wasn't in heaven watching them. I was there with them watching them grow up. And it was kind of a profound dream. I don't know if that's what happens after we die, but it was a really comforting, beautiful thought because I felt so comforted in this dream after I died that I was still there with my children. And even though I knew for them, they couldn't feel me and it wasn't the same. It was like a different, uh, it was like, it was all okay for me. I don't know. I was like, I was on the other side of it and it was all okay. So if I had to choose what happens after we die, I think that's kind of a comforting feeling to, to feel mm-hmm. like you can be with the people you love. You can experience their lives. You can watch over them and then they'll join you afterwards. Yeah. So that's what I would love to say happens. Yeah. I like that. It's funny I because my brain is a weird place. Like I was thinking that I was like, oh, that's really com- just this idea. And then I'm like, Okay, as a living person, how many people are hanging out in my house? I don't know about. I know. Um, <laughs> Maybe I don't know. want that. No. Yeah, I mean, it's just weird. It's weird to think about. But the about people it. who love you. Yeah, it's like, please tell me you're not hanging out in my bedroom. Please tell me you're not hanging out in my bathroom. <laughs> you know, if you're gonna watch, that's great, but boundaries. You know. <laughs> so. Yeah. See, my dream didn't get that in depth, so I don't know the answer to that one. I don't yeah. remember. <laughs> Uh, but no, I do. I mean, I do like the idea. Well, A, I think becoming a parent does make you think of your own mortality a lot. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it is comforting to think that there is something that remains. And and that's kind I'm I joke about being, you know, agnostic about everything to some extent, but I do just from my own experience feel like, you know, my parents have both died, you know, I I was a a child of much older parents. Like they were, you know, both almost 40 when I was born. So like a lot of my relatives were a lot older. And so, you know, there's just not a lot of my older generation family left. And um, it is comforting to think that some part of them is still there and looking out for you. And yeah, you know, 
I like that. So, yeah. I mean, one last little plug for Olive. Um, really, I wrote, she was grappling with this because I was grappling with mm-hmm. this. And what I would love, I would love readers to come away with their own interpretation of death. Um, Olive comes to a conclusion at the end of the book. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, I don't necessarily, I'm not trying to convince people. Like I, I would love readers to come to their own conclusion and not necessarily the same conclusion as Olive. Um, for me, it was just, like I said, Olive is wondering like, what's the point if there's nothing after we die, what's the point? And that's kind of how I felt. It really felt like, why, why are we doing all of this yeah. if there's nothing after we die? Um, and so, yeah, for me, I've chosen, you know, to think there is something after we die because other, the, because the alternative just seems, it doesn't really make sense to me. So mm-hmm. that's where I have come. That's what I have landed on, but yeah. I would love for everybody to kind of, yeah, draw their own conclusions and get to their own answer. Yeah. No. And I think, I, I think it, the book invites that to you. Um, as we follow Olive's journey and I will just shout out again for folks who have not read it um go get this book and read it it is lovely and if you like me were kind of soured on YA I think this will change your mind um about it because it's just it's lovely and Olive is not a whiny teenager she is a thoughtful powerhouse of a girl that I just fell in love with her so yeah go get this book and read it and Kate, thank you for coming on and sharing your process and, um, and you know, what's coming up for you. We just really appreciate it. And well, thank you so much. It's been wonderful. I mean, uh, when lonely places come out, let's do it again. <laughs> so, oh, that would be great. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, take care. Okay. Thank you so much. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Julian Rashke. Our intro music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew Kay, and our outro music is Voices by Alexander Shinekar. Sue Fertal edits our transcripts, which are available with all of our previous episodes at witchlitpod.com. You can follow us on Instagram and threads at witchlitpod. Please help other witches find us by leaving a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to and reading Witchlet.